Hello and welcome to another episode of Adventures in .NET. I'm Sean Claywell, your host, and with me today are Caleb Wells. Hey y'all. Hey Caleb. And Wailu. Hey, doing today? Hey, things going good, Why? And our guest today is Tim Hewer. Hi, Tim. Hi. Thanks for Hi, having Tim. me. Yeah, thanks for, for being on the show. So to get things started, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, kind of what you do? Sure. I am uh, presently, I work for Microsoft. I am a program manager in the .NET tool space. So I work on the .NET team and my focus is around kind of the tooling ecosystem uh, that delivers capabilities and things around that. So Visual Studio, Visual Studio for Mac, we're investigating some things around VS Code to improve that, the SDK, the CLI, and some of the kind of DevOps pipeline capabilities and things like that. So all around kind of the where the where the developers hit the front end for, for .NET. Yeah, y'all have been killing it the past couple of years. Oh, thank you. Are you stuck at home climbing the walls when you should be hanging out with the community at the latest conference to get canceled? Are you wondering where to hear your JavaScript heroes like Amy Knight and Douglas Crockford and Chris Heilman? After the cancellations, I decided to put on a JavaScript conference for you online. I invited my favorite folks from around the web and got them to come speak at an online event just for you. Go to jsremoteconf.com and check out our speakers and schedule. The conference is on May 14th and 15th. The call for proposals is open until March 31st. Come join us at an online conference that we guarantee will keep you safe and keep you informed. jsremoteconf.com. I actually recently just came to this team, coming back to the .NET team in last summer. Uh, so mm -hmm. prior to that, I um, most of my time actually at Microsoft has been really focused on UI frameworks. And so okay. prior to just coming back to the .NET team, I had worked um, all around in a XAML stack. So WPF, Silverlight, what is now called UWP or the, you know, the Windows platform. And prior, prior to it being in the Windows platform, the, the team wasn't part of the .NET team. And so that's, uh, I'm kind of coming back to DevDiv after being involved in Windows. So it's been, it's been good to see the the progress that the, the team has made in, in the tools. So uh, no credit to me, all the credit to <laughs> uh, the people that actually uh, check in the code, right? And help us be productive. Does that also include uh, VS Online? Uh, VS Online, yeah, that's a good, interesting thing. So we uh, we are actively working on, on VS Online. As you know, a lot of it is in preview right now. And mm -hmm. so there's capabilities of the, the server platform, but also how the tools communicate and connect to the server and what kind of new scenarios and things that we're looking at to in, improve that, right? Like one of the kind of big value propositions is being able to leverage cloud compute for a lot of, you know, uh, difficult tasks that you know, maybe you have large repos and build takes a long time and kind of your inner loop and being able to use an online kind of instance and uh, rapidly do that. Uh, so I'm focused more on the client side pieces of that, less less about the, the server side, but making sure that that the tools that we all use as developers have a good experience when connected to VS Online capabilities. Does that mean that you've got to communicate a lot with the, I guess, the Azure team and also the, the C-sharp team as well? No. Yeah, so the, the C-sharp team is the same group as mine. Um, so Rosalind is a part of our team. It's uh, it's interesting, like, you know, the, the languages in the Rosalind team, we tend to internally, we call them kind of productivity capabilities. So th that, those are the teams that deliver a lot of the code fixes and analyzers and, you know, what I call light bulbs and wrenches that you see in Visual Studio, right? Mm -hmm. uh, refactoring, all of those things. 
And so that team's actively making sure that we're, you know, bringing up those same capabilities that are exposed to to VS Online as well. And of course, like you mentioned, like the the service, of course, itself is is an Azure service and working with them to make sure that we are setting up the right, uh, you know, the right capabilities and I guess, you know, kind of configurations of what developers might want to to leverage and what kind of tools they're planning on going at them. Yeah, I spoke with uh, Jonathan Carter at uh, Microsoft Ignite. Uh, mm-hmm. A lot about about uh, the new BS Online, and it was uh, a really good talk. We recorded an episode on it. It's uh, really exciting. I think uh, it's got a, a bright future. Yeah, we're excited. I think it's uh, you know, and we're just kind of tipping our our toes into it. You know, when you think about the evolution of software tools, we've come a long way, right? From just kind of notepads and compilers to you know high productivity and IDEs. And some ways, you know, when you look at VS Code. You know, we're we're simplifying a little bit, right? Um, going to editors and just being finding the right the right mix of for the right type of developers of what uh, is comfortable for you and productive. And now we start to look, kind of look forward and what kind of services, what developer services are the things that we can enable. Intellicode is an example uh, of one, right? So that as we look and are able to learn from from uh, your repositories and things like that, and you can build your own Intellicode models. Uh, to really improve that that intel that the already good experience in IntelliSense for productivity, but make more targeted to your repos and uh, making that quicker. And so, VS Online is another kind of service that we're we're looking at. And as we've learned things from people that are trying these these different services, you know, we're we're starting to investigate new uh, new ways of leveraging the cloud or exposing more services for developers too. Can you tell us a little bit more about IntelliCode because I I don't know much about it. Sure. So um, if you're familiar with IntelliSense, right, that's the kind of the thing that gives you completion and understanding your models and the way that we all as .NET developers cheat and act like we know what we're doing, right? But uh, so IntelliCode builds on top of IntelliSense and it is what we're actually, so the, the initial models that are built, so it's an AI model that's built on top of, I think that the way we initially built it was the top thousand reposit- public repositories in GitHub, uh, .NET repositories. And so we learned from all those libraries that, that you're leveraging. And so now as you're typing your code and you kind of get the normal dot IntelliSense, we are able to look at the code patterns and understand that, well, instead of you just looking at a, a huge alpha list, we're going to surface what we believe is actually the next most useful function, method, property, whatever it is that you're going to do. So, you know, the classical example is a string. So if you type, you know, if you have a, you know, bar X equals new string, and then your next line is going to, you know, you say X dot something. Normally with just IntelliSense, you're going to get the alpha list of everything that's available for that particular type. With IntelliCode, we're able to interpret and kind of say, well, you're probably going to use write or or you know, read or concatenate or something like that. So you'll see in the IntelliSense list, a little, uh, the, the topmost entries will have a little star next to them. And those are the IntelliCode offerings that we've learned from and said, we think this is actually your next most natural action in, in this space. Like the that cool the thing is, <laughs> yeah, the star, that's what the stars are, right? So what are you turned on for most people, is it? Um, so... It it should be turned on um, from for the base for especially for if you're using Visual Studio 2019. Mm. Um, and then the, the cool thing is is that you can build your own models for your own source code and libraries. So if you have a, a team environment and you have a set of libraries that you know it, it really comes into play like very helpful in like kind of utility scenarios. I think at least that's been my most productive use 
Uh, but you can say, here's my code and train against my code because you might be private, right? You might be in an enterprise and, and you're not a part of that, that Uber build. And so you can train against your code and then distribute that model or publish that model as a part of your repo. Uh, and then all of developers on your team get those learnings as well. And then you can constantly retrain them if you, if you want it as well. So for your hyper-local kind of enterprise scenarios, you can also have your custom IntelliCode models that just light up as a part of the developer experience as well. So does IntelliCode, does it do more than just the auto-completion ordering? Does it go beyond that? Is it yeah, the, the one thing that we recently released was also pattern matching on, um, I'll call it some, some refactoring things. So as you're, like, as you're doing some kind of replaces, right? So maybe you have a function block and, and you're using one of those light bulbs and wrenches and said, oh, yeah, I actually want to change from strongly typed to var. And then you do that action a second time. Then we'll start to offer up, hey, we see three other ways that you, that you can execute this. Do you want us to go ahead and take care of that, those for you as well? You already kind of like, indicated that you want to do those those couple uh, actions and we have seen in your code that there's more that match that pattern and we'll give you that list and give you the opportunity to just say yep update all those as well so those are the kind of the, the things that we're we're looking at so it's not just intellisense we're leveraging you know what are the coding patterns and and how can we offer up those productivity those you know tap into those existing productivity capabilities like refactoring uh, things that we have right now that's uh one of the things that that I appreciate about uh, every Visual Studio release is it, it seems like right you're taking some of the the best tools from the community or from other companies and integrating some of that into the system. You know, four years ago, I felt the need to use ReSharper, right, to do my refactoring and be able to move big chunks around. And there's a couple of reasons I don't use it anymore, but one of them is some of that's now built into to Visual Studio, right? Another one is uh, in your in latest enterprise, you guys now have what is info on code coverage. Yeah. Testing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I use a tool in crunch that does a similar thing. How do you, how do y'all go about what you bring into visual studio, how you integrate it, you know, and, and what makes the cut on, on a addition by addition basis? Yeah, it's a good question. And, and I think there's, you know, there's an interesting dynamic here because you look at tools like ReSharper and, and really any extensible tool that, you know, we leverage. Um, so you mentioned NCrunch like as a tool slash framework, right, that you can leverage. Right. Another classic example is JSON.net, right? Like what's the first oh, library yeah. every .NET developer uses is JSON.net. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we, we kind of take a, a, a balanced approach and over the past years, you know, I mentioned kind of I was back in dev div and now I now I'm mm-hmm. uh, back in there. I'll say a dramatic shift from my previous time to where we're at now is being very very customer focused and data driven. Now there's there's of course things that we want to innovate on and we don't want to kind of look in the rearview mirror. We want to look forward. But to your question, you know, we look at how uh, for people who have opted into the telemetry, we look at kind of what patterns people are using, what tools they're uh, they're trying to div, trying to achieve. We make heavy use of our user studies labs in Redmond. And actually, we're doing more of those user studies online now, too, because of like just like these capabilities we have in talking to each other right. and really seeing like how people are trying to accomplish those things. So first and foremost, customer data is driving our decisions on how we prioritize what we need to do. And then secondarily, um, you're right. There's a great ecosystem, especially for .NET. I think it's one of the the more vast ecosystems that I've seen in, in tools and libraries and frameworks that are available. And we want in the .NET team, 
we definitely want to em- embrace that as an ecosystem, but also we, you know, we want to make sure that our framework is is as full featured as it can be as well, and our tools are as full featured. So, I, you know, we evaluate, you know, kind of on a case by case basis of what we feel is best or strategic, maybe for for that time. Uh, but you know, I can tell you that in our team, we talk about things like you know, we you know, file new, right? You know, when you're creating a new project, we actually want more of the ecosystem to be in front of developers' choices, so that it's you know, you can see what options are available to you there. You know, on the IntelliCode front, like actually one of the other things that that we have done on IntelliCode is even if you don't have like a package reference or a reference to an API that maybe is more frequently used, uh, let's use JSON.net as an example. So let's say you just said file new class library and you start typing, you know, JSON object dot through the IntelliCode service, we'll, we'll actually tell you Hey, did did you mean to use newtonsoft.json? Because we'll actually add that package for you right now and add the using statement. So we're trying to blend in like our products and services along with the popular ecosystem, but at the same time trying to innovate on top of what we have and deliver more and more value in you know the default experiences of Visual Studio and all those things that you mentioned, like the refactorings and kind of code coverage and test things, are areas that you know we'll have an offering ourselves, but also we should work well with the ecosystem. Test is another good example, right? Like Test Explorer, a lot of test frameworks can just plug into that. And so you have a good tool experience on top of your chosen test framework that that you want to work with. The IntelliCode offering up uh, NuGet packages makes a big difference, uh, at least for me. Um, I'm in the process of building out some new projects and prototypes, right? And used to, you know, you know, you, you can do something some way and you start doing it, but you don't remember what package it is and, and it can't find it. And right. And you you churn until you get it right now. Like you said, you you know what to start with. And it's like, hey, did you want to install this package? You know, Microsoft.ASP.net.entityframework.design. Right. Whatever. Right. And, it, and you click it and it's done. Right. Um, and it it definitely makes things a, a lot lot easier when you're starting out a new project. Yeah, definitely. So, yeah, one of the um, the other things you guys have implemented in the last year is live share, and it's amazing how it works, right? Uh, or that it works at all. Um, my, <laughs> yeah. my understanding is um, there's some signal R going on there, but but what what got y'all? To, to start working on live share and, and got you to where it is now. Yeah, I'm, and I'm curious what your y'all's experiences in, in leveraging it. Um, I think, you know, as we reflect back on what I mentioned earlier about kind of what services could we offer for developers yeah. that are just tools, this is another great example of as we, again, are data-driven and kind of looked at how uh, teams are becoming more open to remote team environments. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, you know, you have a quote unquote team, but everyone could be distributed. A great example of that is GitHub team. Uh, another great example is our own Xamarin team, which are, you know, two examples of like highly, highly distributed development teams that actually work, you know, real time on things. And we as a company are going that way. So even in the .NET team, we just recently opened an office in Prague. Uh, so we'll have more, okay. uh, more people remotely. So when you look at that and, and you know, people refer to like the gig economy as well, right? Kind of contractors that are kind of flying in and out of projects. That really spoke to us of, you know, what is this opportunity of how can we bring 
a a peer coding experience you know on your screen for people who you're you're not able to look over the the cubicle or team room and just shout at each other and you know you're not scrumming uh, daily or something like that but you want to still have that hey can you help me look at this right and sure like let's log on together and rather than a screen share you know take that to the next level and add value and have somebody say well let me try this right or i think the the most remarkable part of live share for me is like the F5 experience, right? Like I can just set up a live share and you can debug it without having .NET or anything on on your machine. Yeah, Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's crazy. So that was really the main motivating, uh, one of the main motivating factors was bringing the team concept of, you know, peer coding and, and those type of things really, you know, at everybody's fingertips, no matter where the development tasks are, are being accomplished. And actually, when you look at BS Online, like we mentioned, that kind of is the next iteration of that. And what we learned from LiveShare um, is powering a lot of some of that infrastructure that we have for uh, BS Online uh, as well. Okay. Okay. That, I guess that makes sense, right? Yeah. yeah. I'm waiting for the day where I can just, you know, talk to IntelliCode, you know, mm-hmm. and say, yeah. hey, Intelli- IntelliCode, please build me an app that does this. Or, you know, <laughs> put button here. Add click event, you know, just give it instructions through through voice, you know. Well, when you think about, again, you know, more services that we as developers want and, and you know, some of our, our own competitors in this space are investigating this area as well. And this is something that I personally want to investigate. You know, when I, I talk about the Rosalind team, right, and the team that, that I'm a part of, and we have all these analyzers and, and sometimes people turn them off because they, you know, you want to kind of ignore certain rules or things, but they are powerful. And you as developers as well can create your own analyzers for your teams and kind of, you know, to enforce certain uh, things as well. But when you think about that and you think about where people's codes live now and everything, you know, you're not that far off as far as maybe not like, Hey, visual studio, write my app for me. But certainly are, are we, are we that far off from like, you know, you you're done for the day and you've, you've checked into your branch and tomorrow morning you open your laptop and now your to-do list is filled because the AI agent on the background has run those analyzers and said, Hey, I noticed an optimal optimization here. Uh, I noticed you're not following your, you know, your team's chosen patterns here, or, or maybe even not even just a to-do list, but like here's three PRs to approve. Right. So I, I'm not sure we're that far off from maybe not full fledged, like, creating the code, but it's certainly we have the tools today to inspect the code when we're, when we're developing it, you know, can right. we leverage the cloud and the idle time uh, to do that as well? And, you know, you come back and maybe that'll be annoying, right? You come back and you get your to-do list for the day. I, I can see it being a, a really great educational tool as well. You know, it could notice, Hey, uh, you might want to check your code here. You might have some SQL injection issues or things yeah. like that, mm-hmm. you know, really high priority security things that it just, it knows about, but not every developer knows to, to check those things. Yeah. In fact, um, so we, we have a, a group that we published a couple extensions that we call dev labs. Uh, we don't really talk about the dev labs name, but there's a couple extensions out there. One of them does exactly that, that that I'm actually wanting to pull more into the product is this thing called cred scan. I don't know if you've, you've all have looked at it, but right. like how many times in your code have you, you know, written const, you know, connection underscore string, and then, you know, you've written a, a secret, right? People put secrets in constants or, or things like that, or API keys and stuff. Right. So CredScan was one of these analyzers, I guess you could call it, that, you know, almost a clippy effect, right? Like, I see you're writing a secret. Would you like me to protect that for you, right? And then 
give you a refactoring gesture to put that in your user secrets. Or when we think about the, the cloud environment now, you know, maybe also invite you to say, would you like to actually put this in Key Vault? And then we can help you, you know, use the Key Vault APIs to extract that. That'd be awesome. Yeah. I, I long thought about, you know, there's times where I've had to encrypt certain sections of the web config file. Yeah. And it's a lot of steps and it's usually command line steps you have to go through to do that. And it's like, why can't I just right click on that section in web config and have Visual Studio do all this stuff for me? Yeah. What we're doing now, so another part of my team is we do some of the Azure tooling for .NET. So uh, I know it's an evil word to right-click publish, but um, you know, again, data-driven, a lot of people right. use that capability. Um, right. And it is flexible, especially for interloop development to, to kind of do that. That is something that we're looking to explore that as you're using more and more services, which inherently almost every service API call you have, right, is, is protected in some way, a connection string, an API key, your hash for your subscription or something like that. So what we're doing in tools, and you'll start to see this in, in previews actually in a couple months, um, that if you're using Azure services, we'll tell you those things. Like uh, actually when you, when you start using, we'll detect that you're using Azure storage. And as you configure that, um, and you know, where we ask you, well, what connect, you know, what's your connection string for your, your portal? Um, and you put that in, we'll actually offer it to say, would you like to put that in Key Vault and like configure those for you? So right now, you know, it's less about in the editor experience and more about Azure provisioning and configuring those services, but same concept that, you know, so trying to help you not even get it into the web config and kind of right. like, you know, obfuscate that be beforehand as you're configuring those services. So like I said, that that should start showing up, I think, in in a couple months and in, in some of the previews and I hope people can try it out and give us feedback on that as well. Didn't GitHub have some sort of like a scan or something like that? If you um if you um push um code in there that's got some sort of secret key, it'll and you know, it's a public repo, it'll actually email you. I think. Yeah, so they they have that capability that I I'm not sure is built on the same technology as CredScan, but same concept as well. Like you know, kind of looking for those patterns and keywords mm -hmm. and uh, blocking that. Yeah, for sure. How many times have people pushed? Uh, <laughs> Uh, things in that and, and especially with the nature of git history right like you do it once yeah. and you can't oh, yeah. like yeah it's there, can't take it there. it's there yeah recycle the keys right right yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we're working both in um the microsoft and then the non microsoft like ecosystem and i think probably the biggest advantage i can see with the microsoft ecosystem is the tooling like it it really it's it's such a pleasure to work in Visual Studio compared to other like IDEs that I've worked in, to be honest. And I think it is a lot of this like this continued improvement that you guys are adding to it, you know. So, oh, that's awesome. It's good to hear. I think uh, one of the the things that I always try to push for when we talk about planning, um, you know, there there's always the next greatest thing that we could work on. But uh, mm -hmm. I've always told people, you know, the number one thing you hear is like make the things I have even better. Like yeah. I want the new things, but make the things I have better. And so we always have this kind of continuous improvement thing. And we look at, you know, a lot of people call it, you know, what are the, what are the thousand paper cuts? Um, you actually, uh, GitHub did this a couple of years ago where Nat, the CEO said, our, our next milestone is going to be fixing bugs. Like we're just going to go look at mm -hmm. all the top issues that people have had. And we're just going to go delight, you know, mm -hmm. no new features. We're just going to fix what people want to use and, and are using. That's and smart. I think that's a that's a huge thing, even for the tools, right? Uh, because you mentioned, you know, they they can be a delight to use, but you know, once you get that one paper cut, your life could be better if all if a lot of those were fixed too. So 
we have in our mindset uh, a continuous improvement uh, thing as well. And and we look at the customer reported issues. So use that use that report feedback button. That's that's what we look at. Yeah, it's a huge huge thing for me. Performance is always under that bucket as well, right? That's always a, a journey, yeah. never an end. Have you seen the the .NET community grow significantly in the last few years when you factor in .NET Core being cross-platform, Visual Studio community, VS Code, now VS Online? You know, as part of that, do you see the community getting bigger and bigger because it's more available to more people? Yeah, I think we will. And I think, um, you know, in some near future, I think we're going to share some actual growth numbers, okay. but uh, we definitely, we definitely see that. And I think .NET Core is a is a help, uh, is a boost, even to our existing kind of Microsoft loyalists as well, because it it's a little bit more approachable than the full framework offerings that that you have that also restrict you to Windows, right? So there's right. there's that. Not only are we seeing the just the general growth of the ecosystem, an important thing for us is the adoption. And so over time in history, when you th- thought about like .NET Framework version adoption, you know, we like, .NET, I remember .NET Framework 2 was, was a substantial release, right? A lot of capabilities. Right. right. And then the next big one was really like 3.5. And mm-hmm. the adoption rate from 2 to 3.5 wasn't steep, right? Because you're talking, these are enterprise level scales, client, usually client applications, right? It's harder to, to deploy these type of things. What we're seeing now in .NET Core is the adoption rates are unbelievably rapid. So, you know, we released 3.1 and as we kind of watch that data, we're just like, holy crap, like what's going on? You know, that people are just switching the bits um, at, at the most rapid pace that we've seen in any .NET version across the board. And that gives us hope that we're moving in the right direction and that we're, you know, lighting the things up that uh, the capabilities uh, that people want. And of course, you know, cloud environments kind of demand some of that rapid iteration more so than the client environments, I think. So I think that that is a, a big driver that I see as well. So yeah, so not only not only growth, but um, acceleration of adoption as well. I think right. in the where we'd lo- love to see more growth is in new developers in the learning space, right? And okay. When you think about like, I don't have a CS background. Like, I didn't go to CS school. I don't have a CS degree or anything like that. But I, but I know I'm working with, you know, the schools. Like, I know how kind of curriculum is is built, and I'm not sure that we're, you know, we're at the top of the the curriculum mindset. And I think, you know, getting in that first mind of as people are learning to develop um, is key, and and uh, that's an area that I'd love to see us grow more on. Cool. Early in my career, I figured out which jobs were worth working at and which ones weren't, mostly by trial and error. I created a system that I used to find jobs and later contracts as a freelancer. If you're looking for a job or trying to figure out where you should go next, then check out my book, The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. The book walks you through figuring out what you want, vetting companies that meet your criteria, meeting that company's employees, and getting them to recommend you for a job. Don't settle for whoever has listed their job on the job board. Go out and proactively find the job you'll love. Buy the book at devchat.tv slash job book. That's devchat.tv slash job book. What about, um, do you think the acquisition of like GitHub, like it's probably a couple of years ago now, do you reckon that's changed acquisition um, levels um, and also like the, maybe the, the culture within your team? I mean, for, for my team, you know, we, we made the decision to be open source, you know, before that acquisition. So that wasn't a driver for us, but I, I do believe 
you know, the, with the acquisition of GitHub, like we we wanted to make sure that GitHub remains independent as well. And so, you know, because it serves not only Microsoft, right? It's it's mm. like ninety nine percent of all open source projects, right? So that's that's kind of critical that it's not just a Microsoft tool. But I think what we're seeing is it's it's helping the rest of Microsoft understand what open source is. The good canonical example to me is exactly the team that I came from, right? So the the Windows team, historically, nobody in Windows is going to open source anything. Oddly enough, Windows actually does use a decent amount of open source in the Windows product. It's just not something mm-hmm. we talk about a lot. But in the in the UI frameworks, you know, we really tried to make a big push of like open sourcing uh, the controls, at least in the in the framework. And I, it really wasn't until that kind of company wide recognition of like, hey, we're going to acquire GitHub. This is a critical asset to the software development community. We're going to embrace this mindset. And now, you know, so now Windows has some open source stuff that that they have out there. But it's it's really hard to see new projects at Microsoft start that aren't the first thought of like, okay, we got to create the repo like on GitHub. In fact, I just did one last night. We're we're doing another tool for uh, GitHub Actions and like, it's just, it's not, it's a reflex now of like, oh, we got this new software project. Okay. So by default, it's MIT license open source. Prove me otherwise. That's kind of the the new mentality in the division. I think, you know, when you look at tools, we're a little bit slower on that front. VS Code would be the exception, right? So the kind of a net new tool where everything's open source, but only like parts of Visual Studio are open source, but not the full like shell environment and things like that. Right, uh, but anything that new, I, I definitely think that that acquisition, the mindset of leaders like Scott Guthrie, Nat Friedman, and Satya, like really understand how software is being developed now and what is valuable from a profit standpoint and what is valuable from an ecosystem standpoint. Mm. And like I said, I, I mean, my observation is the reflex is now we're starting a project. It is open source with a generous license, unless you have reasons otherwise. So, what are, what are some of the benefits of open sourcing for Microsoft? Do you think like is it more like people are contributing to the code or contributing to the discussions? You know, they can raise issues in GitHub and things like that. Yeah, I think you know all all the wins that you see out of open source, the the collaboration, I think is is the key. Uh, and I would say, kind of, I have felt that that Microsoft always has had good communication channels, so that I don't think mm-hmm. there was a lack of collaboration. But I think the pace of collaboration is much faster when things are open source because you, you as an interested party in you know, whatever that project is, you can see how things are being developed. The biggest thing for us, I think, in the .NET team and what we do is we also design in the open. So it's not just the code is open. Our process before we write the code is also open. So we do like weekly, we, we kind of open our standups and open our design reviews to the community. Uh-huh. And so we do, like, we'll review a spec for an API, you know, on, uh, we use YouTube. So, like, we'll just, you know, throw it up live and we say, okay, today we're talking about, you know, system JSON was actually one of those that was reviewed um, in the public. And so that level of collaboration is huge so that we get real-time kind of customer validation as we're designing things rather than, you know, we've compiled the code, now let's validate things, which can be a little bit harder to kind of unwind and change that that feedback channel when kind of the train's in motion. But if everybody's a passenger on the train, it really helps deliver 
a higher quality product in the end. And that's what I think we value a lot is just that that constant collaboration. I think, of course, you know, again, all the other open source aspects of, you know, we accept tons of pull requests, like, you know, as we're as we're maybe focused on the innovation, again, those thousand paper cut aspects, you know, having the community see and things that are important to them and say, hey, doesn't look like anyone's attacking this. I'm going to go, you know, submit a, a PR for this bug or mm. uh, this enhancement um, that absolutely helps as well. But the collaboration, I think, is the thing that I would point to in throughout the process, not just the code. So one of the things that I was told was that IntelliCode did a scan of all the public GitHub GitHub repos, and uh, I was wondering what kind of things did it learn when it scanned all those. Yeah, I think it was. I think the the initial scan was like the top thousand public repos. I don't know the heuristics. I, I'm I'm not on that team, so I'm, I don't know the heuristics. I think it was like based on stars popularity kind of thing. Gotcha. Um, and I think the method that we use to understand the models is kind of just the the coding patterns of like what were popular types, what were popular libraries, and what were the you know most used members of all those types and things like that. That's my understanding of like you know the the basic thing of of what it learned. I'm just like you in that aspect of a, a customer in this space, so I see the results of what it's learned. Mm-hmm. I would anticipate that that team would be able to tell you, oh, we learned, we've learned a lot more and we're trying to figure out how we can leverage that, what we've learned, right? Mm. And so I think, I don't, I don't think we've seen the end of what AI inspection of code ha- has value to us. And we, we just saw what the immediate value can deliver and we're trying to productize some of that. And I think there's probably a trove of uh, additional information that, that we can do. Like I said, you know, maybe some of the automatic code fixing the mm-hmm. the pattern the pattern magic or intent right I think that's one thing that I've always seen in working with some AI like like it's a math problem right AI is just going to tell you like here's a pattern like yes or no kind of thing uh, so it's it can be difficult to infer intent of code and I think that's something that uh, would be very very intriguing if if we could leverage what we know from models or scans and things like that to Im- improve developers codes with the right intent and not just say, uh, you know, that you have an error. In, in fact, I, I was working with a, a node app today where I had a statement that said, let, you know, some variable name equal this. And it was being assigned as an out later in a function as an out parameter. Mm-hmm. But the linter was saying, hey, uh, it doesn't look like you're reassigning this, so you should make it a constant. And so like the linter didn't understand the intent of how it was being used. It just saw the code, it just literally saw the code path of like, I see you assign it once and I'm not seeing a line signing it again. It didn't understand the intent of what an out param was. So I think that's, those are things like, you know, I don't, I wouldn't consider a linter AI, but you know, it's pretty close, right? I mean, it's looking for things to help. So that, that would be a, a thing that I would expect us. We have some knowledge in the IntelliCode space and I'm sure we're, by figuring out how to leverage that. I think one of the things that Juan and I discussed in uh, a recent podcast was how I'm I'm currently digging into unit testing and one of the NuGet packages I'm using is Affluent Assertions. And what it does is it basically takes the error message that you get from your assert and gives you more details and more in human readables, you know, mm, speak, cool. right? Yeah. So instead of, you know, a stack trace or some error out of 50 tests that you're not sure where it happened or what it did. This gives you like a paragraph and, 
you know, so it's easier to read and it actually may provide more detail to, to, uh, to dig into, you know, to what I'm trying to figure out what's going wrong. It's, it's been, been helpful so far. I've, I've enjoyed working with it. That's cool. I'll have to check that yeah. out. Yeah. Yeah. Anything's better than just looking at the hex codes for errors, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> right. As far as Visual Studio goes, what do you think is one of the more popular or useful tools or extensions that, that you see people using all the time that, you know, maybe we're, we use it so much we don't even think about it anymore? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think you have to put ReSharper in that bucket. You know, that, that's uh, from a productivity standpoint and, and how people are, you know, desiring to do that. And I think there's some muscle memory there, right? Like as mm-hmm. you look at the history of, of Visual Studio where maybe we didn't have any of those capabilities. And so, you you know, you use a certain tool and now you're just right. used to it and any kind of change is there. So that one, you know, comes, comes to the top of my mind. Um, gosh, man, that's a good question. I'm trying to think of if I actually know the data-driven answer to that. <laughs> Some of my favorites are uh, the productivity power tools, you know, with Mads. Uh-huh. A lot of the uh-huh. things that he builds are, are really useful. And then I also use Ozcode, which I okay. think really yeah. gives yeah. me a great debugging experience with being able to, you know, do almost a time travel type debugging experience. Right. It gives you a lot of, you know, hints in your code while you're debugging of, of what this is going to evaluate to, so on and so forth. So those are great ones for me. Right. I think, I think you're probably right in, in the debugging space. Like when I was working in the, the UI framework space, we, we had a set of extensions that um, helped you kind of like basically put breakpoints on kind of XAML binding expressions and things like that, which is not a typical like C-sharp kind of breakpoint area. And so that's, you know, it's probably a, an area that's, that's most used. I, was, I would say like, you know, core editing experience and then probably those debuggers are are where people are tapping into the more, more extensible places to enhance those experiences. Like you mentioned, the fluid assertions and Oscode is a great one as well. I'm pretty vanilla in my own use. I, I actually don't have any extensions installed. <laughs> it's sad to say, but you know, I'm not building mainstream mission critical applications anymore. But so if something things. doesn't work right for you, you know, it's the, it's the main product. Not <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I think, you know, part of that is intentional on our team as well, right? Like, you know, we, you don't want to be blinded, you know, if we're trying to improve the product, we're, you know, we're starting from what the base is and, and what people are at, you know, if we have a goal of, you know, you can be the most productive you can with the, you know, the install that you have, then, you know, we should live that day to day as well and understand that. One of the uh, newer features that I'm still training myself on using is uh, Control T, right? The the context search within the whole product, yeah. and there there there's a there's a similar tool inside of ReSharper that I used to use all the time. You know, I'll remember, oh yeah, I can use that and just start typing in part of the name, and it will find it for me. You know, it's just I, again, like you said, uh, some of it's training yourself. Uh, you know, new muscle memory. So oh, yeah, that's really hard to train. Yeah. I actually have a question and, you know, this one of those things that, that might not have an answer. And we've talked about this a couple of episodes, but one of the first ones with uh, Mads Christensen, we were talking about Visual Studio and how it's built on the .NET framework. And, and there's a lot and a lot of code in there and a lot of legacy code. And we were talking about .NET 5 Right when you guys you know pull everything together into to the one uh, BCL and CLR right and, and all that stuff, how you're going to transition Visual Studio 
to .NET 5 and how long that's going to take. Just wanted to get your your thoughts on that, if you have any. Yeah, um, there was a there was a picture floating around a long time ago that you know was was a kind of a screenshot of the IDE, a typical IDE where you had the editor and a couple tool windows and stuff, and in it was highlighted every different technology that was used. Visual Studio is a, you know it's an old product and it uses pretty much every piece of developer technology we have ever written. I think like the I think it's the immediate window is still like classic MFC. Like there's a lot, there's a okay. lot there. There's okay, a lot yeah. there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> a lot of the new stuff you see is for, uh, at least on the UI side is, is WPF. And okay. so that's a, you know, that's a big stepping stone for, for .NET core number one, let alone .NET five. Right. So right. .NET Core three was a huge thing for us to bring the windows client aspect to core, um, okay. which adds, you know, not only the value of like, we're innovating in the core space and not in the framework space. So right. let's help, you know, bring the frameworks forward but also the portability of the frameworks, right? So now you can have like a client application that's uh, what we call self-contained deployment. where you can mm-hmm. kind of bring your own framework with you and not have somebody uh, have to have the, the framework installed in their machine. So anyhow, that's, that was a, that's a big move. Like we got to move a lot of pieces to core first. And then as we look at the evolution of, of .NET 5, right now bringing Mono and kind of the Xamarin story in there uh, as well and you know, having truly one runtime. So I think from a Visual Studio standpoint, um, it will be, I think it'll still be a little bit before we can realize that vision from that size of a, of a tool that leverages many, many different frameworks and probably specific patterns that we still need to make sure that .NET Core has as well. Um, you think about like app domains and kind of those classic .NET uh, isms that uh, I'm, I'm sure Visual Studio uses Features that .NET Core needs to, to well, I know for a fact because they've asked us for some things, but yeah. So I think I think that vision is not immediate, but again, when you look at opportunities for us when we do new tooling, um, mm-hmm. uh, maybe new extensibility areas, you know, that we're plugging in, uh, that I, I think .NET Core is is a uh, a means to an end there to you know, and .NET five is just another version of .NET Core, right? So right. Right. I think it's yeah. uh, I, it's definitely on the mind um, as as we partner with the Visual Studio core team themselves, and they mm-hmm. say, "Hey, in order for us to move, these are the capabilities we need," and it's just a matter of like prioritizing those things as well as them, right? So, I mean, you know, Visual Studio as an IDE is is innovating of itself, and they don't right. want to slow their pace of innovation in order to wait for you know some fundamentals uh, things there. Cool. Uh, yes, online is a, a good place where I think we're starting to see some. Some of that uh, happened in some of the online kind of brokered pieces back and forth where they'll be written there. So there seems to be like comparing the release um, schedules of VS Code and VS, like it's classic, I guess. Um, VS Code tends to have like a on a monthly release cycle and VS like the you know, 2019 seems to have like a, like a big release every couple of years. Do you reckon that they'll ever move to kind of like an evergreen model? Two things that we're trying to do on, on that front. Number one, we're trying to be way more public of our roadmap for Visual Studio. And there actually is a doc that is on, on the Visual Studio doc side. You can look it up and say Visual Studio roadmap and, and you should hit it. And so we're trying to kind of have, have a quarterly roadmap that is very public. Um, whereas Visual Studio, as I mentioned, is not fully open source. But that is this is an area where we want at least the process to be open and, and what we're working on. We... In, in the Visual Studio Windows tool, we try to snap to quarterly releases. 
So you'll see like, you know, I think we're in 16.4 right now is, is the, the current release. And so every three months, we'll drop another one of those dot releases. That doesn't mean it's just patch updates. We are actually adding decent amount of uh, features there. Um, but as you mentioned, there, there's probably, I don't know if we've snapped to a roadmap of what a major release means from a timeline perspective. You know, as an example, like when's, when's Visual Studio 17? We call it, sorry, this is the Microsoftism, right? So Visual Studio 2019, the actual version number is the 16 dots. So 17 would be the, the next major version. I don't know what the, what the marketing brand would be, but, you know, det- deciding like what's that, what's that big innovation wave that's going to bump us to a 17 instead of a 1610 or something like that. Those are the things we're trying to articulate in the roadmap capabilities and also get, get feedback from developers on. But I, I, I do see a shift in how we've released. Quarterly is a huge change uh, even in and of itself. Helping people realize that the quarterly releases are not just bug fixes, that there are features in there. It is helpful for us to communicate to our customers as well. It's like we, we actually, I, I do think Visual Studio is releasing way more often than it is and adding value in every one of those releases. Certainly, I, I just got, uh, as yeah. you noted, like VS Code releases, I think every two weeks, uh, technically, but I think they actually, you know, snap maybe, mon- I think you're right. I think it's monthly, right? So kind of like on a sprint-based basis, they have a, an actual monthly form of release. But they also have like really, really active canary channels and things like that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something that we in Visual Studio are trying to, we don't have, in, in my opinion, I'm not sure we have the same kind of level of customer adoption in our kind of preview channels that would help us, you know, kind of rapidly iterate on. But But they do exist. It's just... I can appreciate it's a little bit a little bit harder to move teams uh, to that when you're in an IDE-based environment versus an editor. I just got 16.4.4 in the past couple of days. So, yeah, they're, they're doing regular, regular updates. And I remember when 16.4 first came out, I was really excited about it because it finally brought back my vertical tabs. So, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, yeah, they're still, I hope they're working on some a little more... Uh, Enhancements to the vertical tabs, but uh, yep. that's just something I love is you know having that arrangement there. So, all right, yeah. go ahead, why? Oh, I was just going to ask, um, say that um, it might be also um, a result of the hit the users. So, I guess in Visual Studio, you're more likely to have corporate users who are less likely to accept rapid change than mm-hmm. VS Code, I guess. So, yeah, I think one of the the big innovations that we we finally got around to as well in the previews because uh, the feedback was like especially in the corporate environment to adopt previews it's hard right because you you don't want to impact your actual working environment um, maybe your machine has certain restrictions or anything like that let's be honest usually uninstalls aren't always clean no matter who you are but being able to install side by side is a big thing for Visual Studio I currently have six versions of Visual Studio installed on my machine. And none of them are conflicting with each other, and they're all able to execute side by side. So we've we've tried to do some things to make it easier to at least you know kick the tires on previews, even in those corporate environments, without impacting your work, right? Whereas in the past, if you wanted to take a preview, you were kind of upgrading, and so then you know you you might get the oh we're gonna we're gonna change the format of your CS proj file, <laughs> and you're like well I can't really do that because everybody else is still on you know 2015 or something. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've we've tried to make it easier in the full Visual Studio window space to, to dog food those previews. I think it maybe it helps changing your mindset because I'll be honest, in, in my office, you know, there's a couple of developers when they see a Visual Studio update, 
they're like, ah, I don't want to install this because I don't, I don't want to break anything, right? We're, we're assuming they're bug fixes that might have unintended consequences. But if yeah. we think of it as, right, you're, you're continuing to evolve the application, right, that we're using on a day-to-day basis, it's a different way to look at it, you know, and, and it's easier to, to do the updates and get on board. So. Yeah, and like I said, you know, the combination of the roadmap and the release notes, for that matter, you know, are are things that should be helpful in that regard. So that you know, it's not a mystery anymore. You're like, well, what? Okay, an update. Do I just click update, or you know, now I can actually go look at release notes? And you know, I, I'm not sure that there every bug is listed there, but I, we do a pretty good job listing out what we've, you know, the kind of the major or top top fixed, you know, kind of top voted issues are that we've fixed and stuff. And so again, that transparency aspect of of helping you maybe feel more safer about that, clicking that update button because you're like, oh, actually, I do use the web editor. It looks like they made some changes there. Mm-hmm. Probably going to help me out, you know. And I'm, you know, that insight helps. So I primarily primarily have done on-premise applications in the past, and I want to really start expanding and doing more Azure development. How much can I do within the Visual Studio IDE without having to go out to the cloud and the portal? Um, the portal. Yeah, you you can do quite a bit. I mean, of course, it depends on the Azure kind of or cloud service in general that that um, you're you're leveraging. But when you think about, um, I'll name a couple. So serverless is hot, right? Serverless is a hot technology. Our tooling for Azure Functions runs locally, so you have the runtime there. So you actually can you can you can file new project, create a serverless function on an airplane. And you know, run through your loop and understand how the triggers are there, and you know, do a bunch of different things without ever having to have an actual subscription yet, without ever having to actually push that code to an Azure service yet, and have the confidence that when you do, you're actually running in the same environment that that it has. And then there's so there's there's runtimes that we bring with the tools to help do that. Then there's also kind of emulation, right? So storage, Cosmos, and one other that is escaping me that we in the tools that when you leverage them, uh, storage is a good example, that we have an emulator service that will run in your Visual Studio environment that you can you know, work against, do your coding against, maybe change the structure of your storage. That's the intent, right? The whole inner loop thing. And then when you're ready, you, know, you can switch that uh, configuration string, that key vault string to the actual live service uh, and everything kind of just works that way. So that's kind of how we've approached uh, the tools where we have those capabilities. Going to the portal. So when you were actually ready to make those decisions as well of going to the portal and kind of creating those services, we've done a lot in Visual Studio for not every Azure service, but uh, a lot of the top services that we feel most developers hit on a regular basis to give you the tools to provision the resources, configure them with, within your app and deploy them to those resources all within the tool, um, if you so desire. And you don't have to do all three of those things. You can do one, two, or you know as many as you want. You can use Visual Studio to create the resources. You can use it to test and emulate them. And if you want, you can publish directly from Visual Studio as well. But it's kind of like a little bit of a cafeteria style there. In the next previews that we have, our goal... So right now, if you kind of look at the, the entry point to all these is in the published dialogue. Uh, for the most part, and you, you see or what we call connected services, you see kind of an offering of, I think, maybe four things there. We hope to light up approximately 18 Azure services to be able to provision and deploy to. 
by the time uh, really we released the next uh, the version probably in the late spring early summer and that that uh, again data driven decisions right we look at kind right. of what people are using um, and that's the ones that we prioritize first and then actually there's some interesting new technology that that we think that we have a good pairing with as well so when you look at blazer as an example you know it's a client or sorry blazer uh, webassembly as an example you know, you don't necessarily have to deploy your WebAssembly app to a server, right? You can use storage as your host. And so having that capability in Visual Studio to kind of offer those uh, ideas to you and help you configure those easily is, is something that we're looking to do. Very cool. Yeah, I was really amazed that um, like when I started playing with Azure Serverless, just how like seamless it was because I'd been using Google um, Cloud and you literally have to upload everything to their cloud to to run it, mm. but yeah, I love I love the fact that you can just run it all locally, and it's exactly the same version. It's you'd find on um, when you when you actually finally deploy. So yeah, yeah, it is cool. That is the same thing. And they're by the way, they they're a .NET Core customer as well. I mean that you know a big part of our adoption is is our own first parties, right? You know more than just eating our dog food, like like running it in production and mm. functions is an is an awesome .NET customer for us among other. Oh, so the back end is all written in .NET Core, though. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. Yeah. Oh. Did not know that. All right. So I think we should start wrapping up here. Any other final questions? I'm good. Yeah, I'm good. All right. Well, thanks, Tim, for uh, spending the time with us today. Yeah, pleasure. Uh, Appreciate great. the conversation. Are you freelancing or moonlighting? Or maybe you've thought about going out on your own. Every week, we have a group of developers at various stages of the freelancing journey on The Freelancer Show to talk about becoming better at freelancing. We also bring in experts to talk about marketing, SEO, and delivering high quality to clients. So if you're interested in going freelance or you are freelance, check it out at freelancershow.com. So for the end of the show, I guess we'll go into picks then and I'll start it off today. Uh, one thing I found recently was a release by JetBrains, you know, the makers of ReSharper. They came out with a developer font called Mono. And the page that they've got out there to show you all the different aspects of Mono is kind of one of the most fancy marketing pages for a free font they've ever saw so yeah if, if, you, if you're interested and you know you're a brave person and like to try different fonts in your editor check out the, the new font it's free from JetBrains. all right oh cool yeah and so i'll go next uh mine are going to be uh, a couple of podcasts and uh we'll put them in the show notes but one is uh, malicious life and the other is dark net diaries and they deal with you know, uh, computer viruses and hacking and how to to deal with those things and some of the history of it. And it's, uh, it's, it's interesting to, to listen to. So. Okay. I'll go next. Um, so uh, today's book, I'd say today's pick um, is a book I read a long time ago called um, Blindness by Jose uh, Saramago. Uh, and I've kind of thought about this book just because of events that's been happening recently um, in the world. Um, but the premise is that there's this illness that's going around where essentially everyone in the entire world goes blind um, and kind of what happens as society kind of breaks down. Um, it's, actually, it's actually dark, um, but, but yeah, it was, it, was a, it was a pretty good book um, based on that premise. So, All right. Tim, what do you, what do you think you're going to have your pick be today? Uh, I'm going to give you two. Right. So uh, I'll give you a technical one and then... Uh, a little bit something about me. So I, I have been uh, deep into DevOps as a mm-hmm. developer. I am a firm believer now. I don't start a project. The first thing I do in a project now is configure a CI/CD uh, flow. So 
very much uh, into that. And so I've been spending a lot of time in GitHub Actions. And so if you haven't uh, explored that, uh, that is something that uh, is extremely flexible, uh, amazingly diverse, and you can you can pretty much do anything. And if it's not there, you can write the code to do it. So it's been exciting to kind of play around and, and have some fun there. Second thing is I'm a true crime nut. That actually is my educational background is law. And uh, I'll give you a podcast. There's one called Bardstown. It's like bardstownpodcast.com. Crazy stories, but if you're a true crime nut, it's a good podcast. So I enjoy I'll, those. Uh, I'll add it to my list. Yeah. <laughs> awesome, awesome, awesome. So if uh, any of our listeners have questions, they, is there a way they can reach out and get in touch with you? For me, yeah, sure. Um, I'm pretty much available. My email and everything is uh, wide open. So uh, timhewer.com is, is my site. Um, Tim Hewer is my Twitter handle as well. And that's also my alias at Microsoft. So you can reach me uh, at any time. I don't always claim to know the answer, but I'm always willing to help route it to, uh, to, to people that, that I think know the answer. So always, ha- always happy to be an open door. Thank you. Thank you. If people want to reach out to the show and get in touch with me, they can also find me on Twitter. I am at .net superhero. And um, I think you can find both me and Y on LinkedIn because I don't really <laughs> do social media. Yeah. Probably stick to those links on the show notes, I guess. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I'll all add right. mine. All right. Just leave it up to me, guys, right? Right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's <laughs> yeah, all you. Right. <laughs> all right, guys. Thanks for a great episode. We'll catch everybody on the next one. Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.